0: somewhat providential that the passage I've chosen to, to, to talk about this morning comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, and um, while this particular passage isn't part of what we're talking about this morning, uh, the Thessalonians did deal with what we just talked about up here and losing loved ones, and Paul wrote to them and, and wanted to address this situation of how you handle losing loved ones, and, and Paul says in chapter 4 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he said, Brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, about those who have departed from us. We don't want you to grieve like others do who have no hope. We want you to grieve as those with hope. And that's the encouragement this morning as Pastor Rick shared and as we remember these loved ones and certainly myself and affected by this uh, in the last few years. And it is is sorrowful that we think about these people, but we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope. And we're so thankful for that. So let us go to God and ask for his blessing in our time. Father God, we do thank you that you have given us full and certain hope that we can cast upon in times like this and remember loved ones during the holiday season. Lord, we ask that you will grant us a, a life full of expectancy, knowing that you are working out your kingdom amongst us. And Lord, we know, and you know this morning, how hard it is this morning as, as a tough day, um, even just recovering from the, the, the parties, uh, a tough day because of the weather that we come here this morning. We ask that, Lord, your word, your spirit will stir us up this morning. Lord, quicken us to your spirit so that we may be attentive to your word, that we may be listening uh, with the hope and want to, to repent and obey you in all ways and to see clearly who you are. And Lord, I pray for myself that you will uh, keep me faithful and humble to your word, Lord. Lord, be with us these moments, Lord, as we think about you and cast our eyes upon you. It's your son's holy and precious name we ask these things. Amen. So if you don't have a Bible open, I do encourage you to open up to page 988, if you were using a pew Bible, to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We'll be looking at, at chapter 1 there. And it'll be really helpful. We'll be looking at a few other verses in 1 Thessalonians. So it'll be really helpful if you open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to open up the Pew Bible. And if you need one, take it with you. It's our gift to, to you. So please do that. Um, if you need to, scooch close to someone who has a Bible, whatever it is. It's, it, you're not here to listen to me. You're here to hear God speak through His holy and inspired Word. Okay? <clears throat> Normally, Pastor Al starts with is a big idea that he has listed at the top of his notes. And I want to keep that theme, but just change it a little bit today. Instead of the big idea, I want to start with the big question. Because questions have an amazing way to make us think, even if they're simple. A well-timed question just makes us think or puts us maybe in a position we don't know what to say and makes us realize that we, we better think through this more. Uh, now, now, some questions are easy, aren't they? They're easy to answer. I mean, questions like, what's two plus two? For. But some questions are a bit harder, aren't they? Maybe you've heard this one. So, how do I look in this? What do you say to that one? Well, I know what I say in my case, but uh, my wife told me uh, just the other day about a question one of our kids asked her when she got done with their Bible lesson for the day, part of their curriculum, talking about how God made us just how He wants us. One of our kids, she's holding one of our kids in her lap, says, Mommy, If God made us just how he wanted us, why do you color your hair? (laughs) Maybe you had a hard question this week that was asked upon you as you open up the gift and tear it open, and someone there standing there looking right at you expectantly, so do you like it? What do you say? Well, Jerry Seinfeld always points out that you can tell someone's response to a gift, you know it's not a good response if they repeat the name of the gift. They open it up, oh, tube socks. Right? And that's, by the way, I have to pause and say, Mom, I like this. My mom's here, and she gave me socks. I like the socks you gave me, Mom. So thank you. Just wanted to make sure we're clear. I keep my mom happy. Um, But there is a question today that you have listed at the top of your outline in the bulletin insert that I do want us to seriously consider. It's a question that could revolutionize your life, a question to make you think, to make you pause, and to consider what this whole Christianity thing is all about. And the question is listed straight there. If someone was to ask you briefly to explain what is a Christian and how to live as one, what would you say? Well, let's read 1 Thessalonians because I think this is one of the best areas of Scripture that gives us a concise, detailed answer to that question. And we'll be looking closely at verses 9 and 10, but I want to read a little bit broader to get the context. So let's start off at chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our Lord and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you may, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need say nothing. There needs to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I don't really want to go into a grammar lesson today, but I do want to point out that the three verbs in verses 9 and 10, there's three verbs there, really do give us the key to answering these two questions we have before us this morning. What is a Christian and how to live as one? Those three verbs, as you see there, is to turn, serve, and wait. And let's look at the first one there. A Christian is someone who has turned away from idols. The Thessalonians lived in a typical Roman-ruled city of that era. Um, It was full of idols. The Roman religions, following on with the Greek religions, uh, were were full of all different kinds of gods. And, And no one person, and no religious club, had only one god. They had all sorts of gods they worshipped and served. And maybe you've heard of one of the gods, Zeus, and there's many others that you can name that you've probably heard of. But everyone has all these sorts of gods that they thought were really helpful. The god of the sun, the god of the moon, and all these different kinds of gods. Well, one of the earliest extant epigrams about Thessalonica Thessalonica, said there were at least 20 deities that played a formal role in the everyday life of a Thessalonian, that played into their just daily existence of who they prayed to and how they worshiped God. Now, we don't know exactly who the Thessalonians worshipped and served, but we do know that they had these 20 gods, and we know that if they heard about another god, they would just take that god in to be a part of the pantheon of their gods. They'd say, boy, this, this god seems really helpful. I'm going to put him or her on my shelf and make a little idol and worship him, and maybe that's really good, and I'll get some more blessing in my life. And what that is called, it's called syncretism. That's called this idea that they would blend together all the religious practices and customs into this one bag that they called their own, a, a mixed bag of religious beliefs and practices. And it says we don't know which gods they turned away from, but one thing we do know for a fact is that they did turn away from those idols to serve the one and true and living God. And that was a radical and drastic thing to do. Drastic in the sense that no one serves one God, Drastic in the sense that everyone who serves gods had visible representation of gods on their mantle, in their houses, all over the place. You wouldn't serve a god that you can't see or touch or feel. And drastic in that no one would disown his or her own religious royalty or, or how they were brought up. No one disowned those gods. It's like the Catholic guy I played tennis with. He's a liberal-minded guy and one of his friends convinced him to go along to a Unitarian church for a few weeks and after those few weeks he said, "Paul, that was his name, Paul, why don't you why don't you become a member of this church?" And Paul laughed him in and said, "Look at me. I can't be Unitarian. I'm Italian. I have to be Catholic. <laughs> it would have been that way for the Thessalonians to give up all their other guys gods to serve one god. I'm Thessalonian." I can't go and just serve one God that you can't see or feel or touch. But this is how Paul knows their conversion is true. There are no cultural Christians of the day. They turned away from idols, and it was clear to Paul that they did this. And it cleared to the Macedonians and the and all those around them, because it was such a drastic thing to do. Now, that was then. What about Now, I mean, surely we're modern, sophisticated, informed, intelligent people. We no longer need to pray to Jupiter, the god of the rain in the second heavens, because we know how rains form, and we know when rain is coming, we have meteorologists, right? It's probably not the best example, I guess, but you get the point. We don't have idols these days, do we? Think of the condescension and the snickering tone we, we, we talk about our friends if we found out one of our other friends had little idols on his mantle and worshiped to them and prayed to them every day. We just looked down upon them. When Paul visited Athens, the very next city after Thessalonica, he was distressed because as he looked around he saw a number of idols. He mocked them with his opening statement in Acts 17. He says, "'Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you're a religious people,' And that wasn't a compliment. He was saying, Men of Athens, I see in every way you're a greatly idolatrous people. Now, what would Paul say of our land, in our time, of our towns, our homes, our lives? Maybe he could charge us with all sorts of things, but he certainly couldn't charge us with idolatry, right? Hardly. Listen to these. String of short quotes that what idolatry is and what idols are in modern 21st century sophisticated America. Richard Key says this, Idolatry may not involve explicit denial of God's existence or His character. Often it comes in the form of an over-attachment to something that in itself is perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, a pleasure, a hobby, a hero. Anything can be substituted for God, and it's an idol. Tim Keller says it this way, our idols are those things we count on to give our lives meaning and purpose. They're the things with which we say, I need this to make me happy, or if I don't have this, my my life won't be meaningful. Tim Chester says that idols are what we're greedy for. What are you greedy for? What do you think will make your life happy and fulfilled and accomplished? If I only had this much money in the bank, if if I only had this person, or, or if this person wasn't in my life, if I only had this new job, if my situation was only different, if my health was different, if, if, if. I see that in every way you're a very idolatrous people, Paul would say of us as he walks around our land and sees the shrines of our children as we tote them from one event after the other in the name of keeping them involved and keeping them active. The shrine of sports as it penetrates so deeply into our community that we can't even have church services past 12.30 or no one will stay or schedule a birthday party during a big game because no one will come. The shrine of career, the shrine of retirement, the shrine of health in your body, the shrine of your spouse, And above all, the biggest, most pristine and well-kept shrine, the shrine of old number one, yourself. See, a Christian that says there in verse 9 is someone who is turned away from any and all idols. Does that describe you? Well, not only is a Christian turned away from idols, there's there's much more to it. You see there at the end of verse 9, a Christian is someone who is turning To serve the living and true God. See, if you're going to be a Christian, you base your Christian beliefs on the truth. Not an experience, not a hunch, not just because that's what you've always believed. Christians serve God because God is true. So if you're someone here today who's skeptical about this whole Christian thing, then I just want to commend you and encourage you to say there's no better use of your time to investigate the truth claims of Christianity find out whether it's true or not but don't give yourself to something that's not true don't give yourself something that you're not really sure of but it says there god's not only the true god but he's the living god he's not just a power or entity like the force he's living he's active and that's exactly the opposite of idols those gods are dead and false and that's what makes idolatry so stupid it's what, making our, it's what makes living our lives for those things so stupid. They're dead, they're false, they can't give lasting fulfillment or fulfillment at all. But if God is God, and He is the true and living God, then serve Him. That's what the Thessalonians did. It's of no use to believe in God but not serve Him. That wouldn't make any sense. If God is God, serve Him. That's really what I don't get about casual Christianity, the one who makes the claim to be Christian but makes... Virtually no impact on their life, except maybe the 90 minutes on Sunday morning. To paraphrase Joshua 24, if God is God, get on with serving Him. But if Baal is God, if these other things are God, if you yourself are God, well, give this all up and get on with serving yourself. But what you can't do, you can't do both. See, the idea of turning and repenting is actually changing, abandoning one direction, changing your mind and going the other direction. And maybe a really easy example to get you active, not too active this morning, is this. I want you to look over to those two crosses on my right, on your left, and cast both your eyes on those. Now, while keeping your eyes fully fixated on those two crosses, I want you to turn and look at the back wall. You can't do it, can you? There's no way you can do that. And that's exactly what's going on in Christianity. You can't serve idols and serve God. It's impossible. You can't do it. There was no syncretism in the Thessalonian conversion. They abandoned their idols in the service of the true and living God. See, I think this is one of the biggest misunderstandings of Christianity I come about as I talk to people. If we think Christianity is about being good or the the number of good things you do or we measure our christianness about how good we are how much change we've seen in our life well then we think when you know we've gone on the diet and we've made great change we stop swearing we drop the alcohol we'll think that boy that's that's really good and christian but friends i've seen people giving up give up having affairs for no reason that has anything to do with christianity it's just simply a better way to live and people figure that out don't they See, a Christian is someone who serves God with his, or his actions or her actions, but also with the proper motivation, with the proper intent to say, I'm doing these things not just because it's the better way to live or might get better life because of it. I'm doing these things because I want to serve and give glory to the Lord. So don't make the mistake that your own good living is really just serving yourself. It's a misdirection. Often living what appears to be a Christian life, but it's simply sheer coincidence that you're living just like a Christian would live. Maybe a personal example will help illustrate this. I don't drink alcohol. I don't like it. I never have liked it. I don't enjoy it. And for me to stand up here and say that I don't drink alcohol to give full glory to God, for me to stand up here and say I don't drink alcohol because I don't want to cause other Christians to stumble is wrong and arrogant and stupid. No, I don't drink alcohol, but just the providential way of God, he's literally made this tongue not palatable to the alcohol taste. It's just sheer coincidence and providence that I don't drink. And see, what I fear is that many of us happen to be doing some of the right things, but have the false sense that we're serving God by doing those things. Maybe you grew up in a good and moral house and learned that from an early age, if you did the right things and avoided the wrong things... You got things, and you avoided the punishment. You shake that together, and you get a cultural Christian, but you don't get a New Testament Christian. Charles Spurgeon tells this story. He sets the scene in feudal medieval times of the king and his, his peasants, and a peasant who had a, a land way down the hill loved growing turnips and carrots. And this peasant one day collected his best, biggest, juiciest carrots and turnips and put them in a basket and took him up to the palace because he loved the king adored him he goes up and he gets himself into the court and he said sire i present to you my best carrots my tastiest turnips if there can be such a thing sire they're yours and the king touched by sincerity got up off of his throne and walked down put his arm in his shoulder and said thank you I have an acre of land right next to yours. It's yours, you can do whatever you want with it. Now there was a nobleman in his court that day, and the nobleman sat and watched this scene unfold and thought to himself, boy, some turnips some carrots, get him an acre. Hmm, wonder what I could get. So he came back the next day, got into the court, and he brought his best, the most valuable, most beautiful workhorse and pulled it into the court said, sire, I present to you this day my best workhorse. The king, being very wise, stood up, walked down, took the rope, and started to walk away. The Noma man's man- jaw dropped to the ground. Perceiving this, the king turned around and said, see, the peasant gave me the carrots. You gave yourself the horse. Spurgeon goes on to say that if we want to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give money to the poor, then we must do it in honor and service of God to bring him glory. Otherwise, we're feeding ourselves and clothing ourselves and giving money to ourselves. Serving the Lord is an intentional action to do something what's best for God and his glory. We could give many examples of this, but let's keep our eyes in Thessalonians to to see the example they lived it out, to give flesh to what it means to serve God with our actions and our motivations. And we see there down in verse 6 and 7 and 8 that one of the things they did, they served God through much affliction. That's how Paul knew that their conversion was true, that they kept serving God despite being afflicted, persecuted. They kept serving God when it was really hard. It was a drastic, radical thing to do. One of the great litmus tests of our own faith is what happens when we suffer? What happens when times are tough? What happens when persecution especially comes? How will we react? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism in the 18th century, said, Among the many things we want our people to do, what we want them to do is we want them to suffer well. We want them to die as Christians. That's what marked off Methodism, according to Wesley. The other thing we see there in verse 8, or 7, I'm sorry, is that not only did they suffer well, they accepted the word of God and lived out their Christian lives, serving the Lord despite what happened to them, but they also served God by being examples to other Christians. And there's another test of your service to the Lord. Are you serving the Lord... And people give you the glory, or you're serving the Lord, and God is getting the glory. My good friend John talked to me, told me about uh, an article he read about pro football player J.J. Watt. And J.J. Watt, this, this author said, is the new great face of the NFL because he's a fantastic player, one of the best players in the league, but he's also a really good guy off the field. He doesn't get in trouble, he doesn't get arrested. He gives lots of money away. He spends time with sick children in hospital, hospitals. Fantastic things to do. But what this author of the article said, what's so great about J.J. Watt as compared to someone like Tim Tebow is J.J. Watt doesn't do it with all these Christian words and always giving glory to Jesus. Now, I'm not commenting on whether J.J. Watt is a Christian or not. I have no idea. But what I do know is when J.J. Watt does something really good and fantastic and really neat and distinctively good, who gets the glory? J.J. Watt. When the Thessalonians did something that is unique and salty and distinctively Christian, what happens? One or two things. Either they'll get persecuted for it or God will get the glory. That's being an example believer. What do you do when you encounter the one who owns you and makes you and is the ruler of the entire universe? What do you do when you encounter the true and living God, the one who will judge you on judgment day? You serve him. That's the only appropriate response. If God is God, then serve him with your whole being. Treat him as God in your life with every ounce of your ability. A Christian is someone who has turned from idols in order To serve the living and true God and to give him the glory no matter what happens to ourselves. No matter what good we may get or not get from it. You see there that the third verb in verse 10 there that we want to talk about this morning is is a Christian is one who waits for the return of the Lord. This is the only time this verb is used in the Greek New Testament and it's hard to translate, because the word wait is, is, is probably fairly accurate, but it doesn't quite convey the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word is really a waiting with expectancy, a waiting with hope, an act of waiting. So the question we have before us is, are you looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ? It really is a sign of the trueness of your Christianity. A Christian, according to Paul and the Thessalonians, is someone who can't wait for the coming of Christ from heaven. Because the logic is really simple. If Jesus is our treasure, if he is our hope, our loved one, our desire, not just the things he does for us, but he and him himself, is he the one we treasure and look forward to being with, then we'll want him to come back as soon as possible. No matter how tightly we want to cling to the things of this world. And this waiting that they were doing isn't pie-in-the-sky mentality. It's coal faced hard work work. It's active waiting. It's the working out of your beliefs that the most treasured treasure is in heaven, and you can't wait for that treasure to be with you. Do you treasure Jesus like that? Or, as in terms of I said earlier, are you greedy for Jesus's return? This waiting that the Thessalonians demonstrated, you can see this flip over one passage there in chapter 5, just one page. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. This is what the waiting looked like. Chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We wait for God by serving Him by building up our brothers and sisters. Or if you drop down to verse 14 in the same chapter, we admonish the undisciplined, we encourage the faint-hearted, we help the weak, and we show patience towards all people as we proclaim God's truth, as we build up people towards love and good works. A friend of mine's named Robert. Robert's a 70-year-old man and one of the best examples of this waiting that I know of. After a very successful career, Robert could have settled down in retirement and just waited passively for the Lord. He's a wonderful Christian man, too. He could have just spent his time going on trips and spending his money and energies and hobbies and leisures and all that. But that's not the gist of Robert's life. At 70 years old, Robert enrolled in seminary because he loves God's Word. At 70 years old, he's involved with small groups of people who are half his age him and his lovely wife spend week in and week out helping these young couples, training them, giving them a good life example of what it means to be a Christian. Not lamenting of how much the next generations ruined everything, but investing in them, loving them, building them up because of the coming of the Lord is so important. That's how you wait. You actively invest your, in people. You spend your time and money and energies for the intentional glories of the Lord. And maybe you put it this way and in the form of yet another question. What you spend your time with now is a showcase of what you hope for in the future. What are you waiting for? It's a question. So there you have it. A Christian is someone who has turned from idols to serve the living and true God, A Christian is someone who is actively and expectantly waiting for the great return of the wonderful Lord Jesus as King to rescue his people. But don't misunderstand, even though I presented this as three verbs and three points in this sermon, it really is just one action. For you can't have one truly without the other. If someone isn't expectantly waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back, then they're not really serving the living and true God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if they're not serving the God, well, they're serving someone. They're serving idols. And this is why it's so important that we know the second part of this question that we put up there for the morning. Because continuing on to live as a Christian is no different than how we became a Christian in the first place. That's what the Thessalonians did. I mean, there's lots of ideas of how, lots of books of how to live as a Christian and the processes and methodologies, but really it's no different than anything we said this morning. The Thessalonians continued to live as Christians in the same way they started. They turn, they serve, and they wait. Martin Luther says this, to progress or to progress in the Christian life is to always begin again each day. It's the daily request to put these three verbs, turn, serve, and wait, into action in your everyday life. As as Calvin says, the race of daily repentance, the race of daily turning, is what God has assigned you for the rest of your life. So you apply these simple but powerful mindset to your daily life. Maybe a personal example will help flesh this out. Among my many issues, among my many idols, One of the things I struggle the most with is anxiety. Anxious over all sorts of things providing for my family, providing for my own health, providing for my own reputation, providing for my leisure. But those anxieties are really just surface level issues, aren't they? What's really going on, what's fundamentally going on, is a distrust in God's goodness and God's godness. What's really going on is that I am a prideful idolater. Idolizing my reputation, idolizing the middle class life, idolizing money, idolizing just living and having a good time, idolizing my own ability to control my destiny, idolizing my own ability to control what others think of me, it's a cult, friends, and I'm the leader, and I'm the follower, and it's a sad existence. And of course, as I said earlier, nothing really on that list is insidious or evil in itself, all are fine things given by God for good. But my idol factory of a heart, as Calvin says, erects little shrines of these things each and every day and gets me to justify their existence and gets me to say that they must have prominence in my life. I can't get rid of them. What I need to do each and every day is to turn from my sinful motivations Turn from my idols and serve the living and true God. Serve Him with my whole heart and mind and all the energy and provisions He's given me. And He's given me plenty to do as I wait for His coming. He's given me this encouragement work, as we said there in 5.14 or 12. There's lots of people to build up and encourage as they build me up and encourage me. It's a daily act. C.S. Lewis says it this way, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger life come flowing in, the life that the only the Word of God paints. So there you have it. A Christian's guide to being Christian. Turn, serve, wait. And my hunch is that there are some of you here today that know deep down that you've never really turned. That your livelihood as a Christian and is one really of coincidence and timing and background. And your existence as a Christian is really only a passive participation in a Sunday morning gathering. If that's you this morning, I want to sincerely beg you to reconsider. I want to ask you to humble yourself and consider and maybe reconsider the true and living God. I want, you to ask, I want to ask you to consider the wrath to come, as we read there in chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus indeed does deliver us from that wrath, but make no mistake, if we don't respond to the gospel message like the Thessalonians, the wrath of God indeed remains upon us. And there are those here today who know all of this is true, who believe in Jesus, who know there will be a day of recompense coming in the future, but for many and varied reasons, you aren't active in tearing down and getting rid of the idols in your life. Listen, friends, I get it. I empathize. Really, I do. But this is the opportunity to let the Word of God dwell richly with you. Whether it's memorizing a scripture like this or dwelling more deeply through the whole book of first, Thess- first thessalonians getting involved in a bible study just meeting with a christian friend and say i need help we can help each other let's open the bible pray and work hard at this whatever it is don't leave this room today because as soon as you leave it's like the c.s lois quote the wild animals of the world and the worldliness come rushing in at you and you know the feeling There's a book I maybe recommend. I've been reading through it with a good friend of mine and it's one of the best Christian books I've read in a long time. It's called You Can Change and it addresses this idea of tearing down the idols in your life. I encourage you, among the other things, you could get a book like this. It's by Tim Chester, Crossway Publishers. You can get it at Amazon or wherever. I encourage you, pick this up, read it through and seek for the right reasons to glorify God and change your life to serve the living and true God. So we started with the question. What is a Christian and how to live as one? And I hope we've sufficiently given you enough, at least enough, to get going on that. A Christian is someone who's turned, who serves, and is waiting. But I think we may need to rephrase the question as we close here. Maybe the question should actually be, are we, are you really a Christian? And if you are, Are you living as one? May God help us all. Let us pray. Father, we do thank and praise you as our Heavenly Father that you are God. We thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us open to our own vices. Lord, we thank and praise you that you haven't unleashed the rope of our sinfulness that you've constrained us, Lord, and we're so thankful that you've confronted us this morning. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given us an opportunity through your son's death and resurrection to be forgiven fully, finally, completely. And Lord, we do pray that we indeed will turn and serve you through your son Jesus as king and treat him as king no matter what comes of us in this world. Lord, no matter the good that comes or the bad that comes, we ask, Lord, that you will grant us a full heart and mind desire to see you glorified, to serve you with every ounce of our being. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. And we ask you, Lord, even this day, that we could take account of the idols in our life, that we could expose them and destroy them through your word and spirit and through giving us the gifts of each other. We ask you, Lord, that you will grant us love for one another, to encourage each other all the more as the day draws near, Lord. Lord, convince us of these troops deep down to our core and let your word dwell with us richly and powerfully so that we may change to the glory of you and that others around us may be encouraged to the glory of your son. Thank you for listening to us, Lord, and it's in your son's precious and wonderful name we pray this. Amen.